Hello, I'm Peter Tufano, the Dean of Said Business School at the University of Oxford. Welcome back to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast that brings you the latest insights from the front lines of business. This audio series is curated from a program of online discussions that we've been running since COVID-19 hit. We want to harness the wisdom and experience of our global network of academics and experts to help the business community and the world more generally to build forward better as we emerge from this crisis. When trust in institutions fails, the world looks to business to solve its problems. And at Said Business School, we bring you the world's most diverse set of minds for the answers. You can find our library of past episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Episode four, The Bold Ones, High Impact Entrepreneurs. To move forward after the pandemic, it's gonna take bold thinking and bold action. So in this episode, we're talking about high impact entrepreneurs, people who launch and grow companies that have above average impacts on job creation, wealth creation, and improving standards of living. To explore this, we have two very special guests. Linda Rottenberg emboldens the boldest. She's the co-founder and CEO of Endeavor, a global network that links and nurtures high-level impact entrepreneurs. Linda's been called the innovator for the 21st century and an entrepreneur whisperer. She said, people told us we were crazy, but we took it as a compliment. And she called her book, Crazy as a Compliment, The Power of Zigging When Everyone Else is Zagging, which encapsulates her approach. It's going to take this level of craziness and boldness to power us into the future. Linda saw early on that entrepreneurship is not just a Silicon Valley game, but a global phenomena. And Endeavor works with high-impact entrepreneurs in 35 countries and underserved U.S. cities. I'm proud to say that Linda is also a friend of Oxford Said. She's an advisor to the Pershing Square Fellows Program, founded by the Pershing Square Foundation and Bill Ackman, which helps train the next generation of leaders. Linda is in conversation with my colleague, Pinar Oskam, Professor of Entrepreneurship and Innovation here at Said Business School. Pinar is the director of the Oxford Program on Finance and Technology, FinTech, and she's breaking new ground in innovation broadly, but specifically in FinTech and open banking. Pinar and Linda discuss the evolution of high-impact entrepreneurship and why it's more important than ever as the world begins to emerge from this pandemic. Now over to Pinar Oskan. Thank you so much, Peter, and welcome, Linda. It is such a pleasure to meet you. Um, I am a big fan, uh, like many people who are on this call now. And um, I want to, first of all, thank you for being here and uh, agreeing to talk with us about um, high-impact entrepreneurship. And um, I want to just start out by asking you to tell us what, uh, how your journey in this uh, way started. Well, first of all, it's wonderful to be with you, Pinar, and... I am such a fan of, of what uh, Peter Tufano has done at Oxford Said Business School. I just wish I could be with you in person. So hopefully at some point in the not too distant future. Um, so my journey uh, started, I guess back in college when speaking of Bill Ackman, Bill was one of my college friends and he was watching Warren Buffett in the stock market as were most of my friends that I thought, I'm not sure that journey is for me. And then there was, you know, LA Law was a very popular TV show. And I thought, I don't know, maybe I'll go to law school. So I went from Harvard to Yale Law School and thought, oh my God, I thought Yale Law School was just about, you know, studying philosophy and political economy. I didn't realize people actually wanted to be lawyers or judges. So my professors took pity on me when I was the only one in my class that didn't have uh, the Supreme Court clerkships and the political career mapped out. And I, they sent me down to Latin America. And what I realized over a series of years and projects, I did some work at Ashoka, um, Innovators for the Public, was that there was so much talent, but there were no entrepreneurs. And this is now the mid-1990s when Yahoo and Netscape are going public, Steve Jobs is coming back to Apple. And I couldn't understand why everyone is talking about microcredit and no one is talking about building the next Microsoft. And I started talking about entrepreneurs and I quickly realized as I was in a taxi in Buenos Aires when the driver explained to me that though he had an engineering degree, there were no jobs outside the government. And when we tried to um, go back and forth, 
realized there wasn't even a word at that point in Spanish or Portuguese or Turkish or Arabic or Bahasa Indonesian or many others for entrepreneur. That was my aha moment. I thought, oh my God, my parents already think I'm crazy for going down to Latin America. But imagine if you can't even tell your parents there's, you know, what you're trying to do after school because there's not even a word. So that's when I got together with my co-founder, Peter Kellner. He was at Harvard Business School at the time, uh, Dean Fana's uh, old hunt, haunting ground. And we said, look, let's try to create um, an organization that selects high impact entrepreneurs. By that, we mean the ones with the biggest ideas, the boldest, who also have the capability to scale the companies to a point where it really matters. They're creating jobs, they're creating you know, value, they're achieving you know, exits, and then have them pay it forward into the ecosystem by inspiring, mentoring, and investing in others. And uh, the last thing I'll say, Pinar, before your next question about what happened is yes, Everyone called me Chica Loca, the crazy girl throughout Latin America, because I would go around talking about these crazy young 20 something year olds with these, you know, technological ideas. And people thought I was I was literally insane. And so I said, all right, if they're going to call me crazy, I'm going to own it. It's a compliment. And we started out. And today um, Endeavor operates in 20 countries, just to give you a scale. We have now worked with um, over 2,000 entrepreneurs. Uh, they generate now close to $30 billion in annual revenue. Uh, they've created over 4 million jobs. And what we have at Endeavor is an, the ecosystem building uh, nonprofit side of things. And then we have a $250 million co-investment fund that co-invests and provides capital to these entrepreneurs. So we can get into that. Um, but today, I'll, I'll, um, there are words in every country. In fact, the editor of the Portuguese um, English Dictionary from Brazil ended up calling us about five years in and said, in part because of Endeavor's work, they were adding the words emprendedor and emprendedorismo uh, into the popular lexicon. They had been unused words. And, and so today, anyone out there who's starting, hopefully you can tell your parents in, in your language that you want to be an entrepreneur and, and, and they'll think it's at least not a terrible idea. That is amazing. And of course, as starting a new ecosystem in a place that is just so different and that, are, that has a, such a strong culture is never easy. Can you tell us a little bit what you did in the first place and what some of the initial challenges were? Yeah. Well, let me take two ecosystem examples. Um, and then uh, just as a starting point, Argentina and then Turkey. Uh, Argentina was one of our first two uh, offices, Argentina and Chile. And so in Argentina, this was after the military junta. There were many business people and young people who had left. And so we 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 wanted a, a homegrown example. Someone had told me that Steve Jobs, while inspiring to me, was not inspiring to them because he started Apple in the famous garage, you know, with Steve Wozniak. And they said, I don't even have a garage, Linda. Like, give me an example <laughs> that's a little more accessible. And so we found our one of our first entrepreneurs who I was just talking to yesterday um, was uh, a kid named Wences who'd grown up on a sheep farm in Patagonia. He'd created the first internet service provider and then sold it and was promptly kicked out the next day, getting nothing. But undeterred, he decided to start in 1997 the E-Trade of Latin America called Patagon.com. 34 local investors turned him down. They had no idea what this was. E-Trade, like, what are you talking about? Anyway, uh, we felt he had something special. So we, we selected Wences as an Endeavor entrepreneur. We helped him raise his first round of capital uh, from Fred Wilson, then of Flatiron Partners today of Union Square Ventures, one of the top VCs in New York. It was his first investment uh, in Latin America. We helped Wences find a COO. And then I always say he got the full service endeavor because he ended up marrying my assistant, Belle. <laughs> and 18 months later, Wences sold Patagon.com to Banco Santander for $750 million. All 34 investors called us up and said, you got another kid with a group with, with strange ideas. And today, all across Latin America, people will say, if Wences can do it, I can too. Today, by the way, he's known in Silicon Valley as Bitcoin patient zero. He sold Mark Zuckerberg his first Bitcoin. He sold Bill Gates his first Bitcoin. He he now runs uh, Zappo, which is a Bitcoin wallet. And and after looking like an idiot in his words for a few years, yeah, starting at the last week, he's looking like a genius again 
he is always a genius no matter what it is. Um, so that's Wences. One of the things that happened in this ripple effect, and we talk about high impact entrepreneurs as really force multipliers for ecosystem change. There were these two Stanford grad, um, well, business school students, um, Marcus and Arnon, who were about to go do what Stanford Business School students did at that point, which is go to McKinsey, go to Goldman Sachs, you know, maybe stay in the Valley and, and, and work for one of the companies there. And they heard Wences' story and they said, you know what, we're going to go back to Argentina. They ended up creating Mercado Libre. Um, they said, we'll take the eBay model and bring it to Argentina. It became a combination of eBay, PayPal, and, um, and Alibaba. Today, as of a few weeks ago, Mercado Libre, which went public on the NASDAQ in 2008, became the first uh, $100 billion company in Latin America, $100 billion. And today, Marcos is still CEO. He's vice chair of Endeavor Argentina. And he and Wences and these uh, young engineers from Globant who created a digital transformation company are inspiring, mentoring, and investing in almost every new new company that comes out. And we just had a, I just had a female entrepreneur build, um, built a digital transformation company, invested in, mentored by the founders of Globe and just sold her company uh, a few weeks ago to Accenture and is now gonna help to mentor female women entrepreneurs. Um, let's move to Turkey because it's a similar story. So we went to Turkey and there were, there were all of these big family businesses, but no one starting tech companies or digital enabled companies. And so one of the early founders we found there is a guy named Nevzat, who is creating the um, online delivery platform for EMEA. And he ended up uh, selling, we invested in him, we supported him uh, with his uh, leadership issues, and he ended up selling to Delivery Hero for close to $600 million. Again, it was the largest internet exit at the time. But what he did was really remarkable because in a place like Turkey, there were no employee stock option plans. So there was no way to get equity. And in fact, no one wanted equity because they thought it was a way to take away their cash. They didn't understand it. Mm -hmm. So what Nevzat did is he kept a ledger of what every employee you know, would have earned in equity, wow. took $27 million, which was about a quarter of his own, of, of his personal returns, and post, uh, post uh, exit, gave that to the employees. Scroll to last July when Sadar, uh, a wonderfully you know, innovative gamer, I'm, I'm doing this because he has this handlebar mustache, and he created one of the top gaming companies that was bought by Zynga for $1.8 billion last year. And he's done the same. Not only did he take his earnings and give it to the employees, again, no stock option plans, but they're now creating a system where their de facto is because this ecosystem is built and they, they believe they have to pay it forward. But he just mentored a young um, husband and wife team from Ankara who are creating a hyper casual game. They're in Ankara, the capital city. There's not much going on. It's a you know husband wife duo. And now the Pete Games uh, senior management team has taken them under their wings and is mentoring them so they can also create a global company out of Turkey. So I think what you're seeing, and I'll end here, but what happens is if you have just a few successful companies, there was a time in India where all people talked about was Wipro, Infosys, and Tata, nothing else. Mm -hmm. Because the founders never went and mentored the next generation. They never went and became founder to funder, the PayPal mafia, right? So one of the things we're trying to do at Endeavor, and Reed Hoffman is a board member, and I joke that we're trying to internationalize the PayPal mafia. And he never likes the word mafia. He's always like, PayPal network. I was like, come on, own the mafia. But really what you're seeing is that it creates this flywheel effect. And so now um, what we're trying to do is take these ecosystems in Nigeria, in Indonesia, you know, in Mexico, in Romania, in all pockets of the world and say it can happen here too. So Linda, um, when you're building these ecosystems, it seems like a very important element is that there's a lot of giving back. When you support an entrepreneur, they become part of a network and they start to give back to the network. Can you tell us how it functions? Sure. I'd say we have a few core values that are really critical to how we operate, especially as we have this hybrid model, right? With the, the for-profit funds and the nonprofit uh, ecosystem building network, you know, ha having values that align uh, the missions of both is critical. 
So three that I'll mention here are one, we're entrepreneur first. We are an organization of, by, and for entrepreneurs. This is critical because at times, you know, there are conflicts between and among entrepreneurs and their investors, entrepreneurs and their, you know, co-founders, entrepreneurs and their board members. And we always focus on the entrepreneur first. And that is unique. And in turn, many of our entrepreneurs end up joining the boards of, of Endeavor. I'll get back to that in a minute. There's a good recent story there. Uh, the second is this network of trust. We won't sign non-disclosure agreements. We think that's one of the problems that Route 128 in Boston had is they had all these non-competes and non-disclosure agreements versus Silicon Valley. It was like, oh, you're leaving? What's your next venture? I'll fund you. So we feel it's our responsibility to have, but you have to have trust then. And if people violate the trust, they have to be, you know, excised from the network. But we've done that. And then the other thing is this pay it forward spirit. And what we've said is we're investing in very few people to have that force multiplier effect. So in fact, of the 250 million we've raised, you know, about a quarter of it to a third of it is from Endeavor entrepreneurs themselves. And the others, it's it's entrepreneurs like Steve Case of AOL and Michael Dell and Reid Hoffman of LinkedIn and Piero Midjar of the, you know of, of of eBay, and so it's this sense that we are of, by, and for entrepreneurs, and it's their responsibility as entrepreneurs to spend time mentoring, to spend time reinvesting, to become those founder to funders. That actually is how Silicon Valley was started. If you if you go back to even the Shockley Lab and the Trader Estate, it's people reinvesting, and 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 that's what we've said. You can't build. Uh, strong businesses and weak ecosystems. You can do a point, and that's what's been amazing. And so just two examples um, of, of, of how this is operating. One is uh, Guillaume of, of Checkout.com. Guillaume um, was is a Swiss national, but has built this incredible fintech company um, in Dubai and London. Um, he and his family is based in Dubai. It's now really one of the top four fintech in the in, in, in platforms in the world. And he came um, to Endeavor before he had raised his Series A, but he had bootstrapped the company to $100 million. And now thought, oh, maybe I, if I want to take on Stripe and Adyen, maybe I should actually uh, get some investors. And we helped him raise his Series A. His Series A was at a $2 billion valuation. It was the third largest fintech um, raised in history. And recently, 18, uh, less than 18 months later, he had a Series C valuing him at $15 billion, becoming um, Europe's um, highest valued um, fintech company. And before this announcement was made, and it was a big deal in all of the, um, you know, the, 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 the press, um, he, Guillaume held the story until Endeavor's website reflected that he enjoyed that he had joined the Endeavor UAE board. This was so personally meaningful to him. Um, he's an investor and catalyst. He spends countless hours mentoring. But I think that what's important about about this this philosophy we have is that at the end of the day, I've told entrepreneurs that my expectation is that boards will be entirely run by entrepreneurs. That they will that we will be completely funded by the success of the entrepreneurs. So all all of the returns Endeavor gets from the funds go to support the nonprofit side. And I thought, what a statement if in the next five to ten years we are fully funded by the success of the very entrepreneurs we're there to support. And then we'll go for the next generation. We'll go to harder places. So that is the philosophy. And everyone who joins this this community, this movement, is is infused with that that same spirit. That's fantastic. And uh, what you're building really is a global platform, but at the same time, you need to have very strong local support for these entrepreneurs to move forward. How do you balance the two? What is the local versus global force for you? Yeah, it's it used to be uh, local versus global. We went through that process. Now we have a hashtag one endeavor logo. Let's all work together. But in seriousness, it's actually gotten easier for the following reasons. Mm -hmm. Look, we have wonderful local boards. We operate with boards in every country. And the board boards are usually, you know, the top business leaders. Sometimes they're, if there's top venture investors, they'll join. Sometimes if there's been a successful entrepreneur, for example, we just um, launched in Romania. So uh, a key board member there is the CTO and co-founder of UiPath, which is one of the most important companies also in Europe based out of Romania. But it's rare. But if we're going in before there are these, you know, tech enabled or tech centric exits, 
we're we're building at, you know the ecosystem as we go. So we start with these you know top highly networked you know family business owners and self-made you know entrepreneurs. And over time, as I said, the entrepreneurs join join these boards. But what is really interesting is it's very rare if you are coming out of you know Brazil or you know Mexico a few years ago or even now you know Indonesia or Vietnam or uh Bulgaria or Greece or Saudi or or Dubai that there are examples of people who've built technology and tech enabled companies to scale so yes there are a lot of large businesses but there are very few of these unicorns and decacorns where people have scaled tech businesses from 100 to 1000 to 10000 employees where they've gone through you know raising series A series B series C rounds when they thought about exits today we get a lot of questions about spacs i'm actually on the board of um, of one of reed hoffman's spacs and and so um, we uh, are through our global verticals and we have an outliers group which are the top performing endeavor entrepreneurs giving this peer to peer network that is unparalleled in the world because there's one thing to open new markets and want access to the people who have those local connections but it's an entirely other thing in a trust based kind of ypo like forum we have these uh the, these endeavor peer to peer forums where you know somebody has been through the same thing which is how do you attract engineers in nigeria you know to your platform how do you scale um, as an entrepreneur to a CEO, how do you deal with issues of, of, of raising capital and challenges with you know, co-founders? And Endeavor is really there um, in that peer-to-peer entrepreneur-first spirit. So that's, that's what we've tried um, to build. So it, it, it naturally, the entrepreneurs want the local market connections, and yet they want access to the top you know, global peers who built successful businesses before. You've been listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times with me, Peter Tufano. In this episode, we're looking at the role of high-impact entrepreneurs when it comes to creating economic and social benefits at scale. In conversation of Professor Pinar Oskan from Said Business School and the entrepreneur whisperer, Linda Rottenberg. Linda nurtures high-impact entrepreneurs in emerging markets, but also in some cities in developed countries. Why this widening of scope? I was against this first, but actually it started actually in, in Greece. And my college friend of mine, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, who now then was a venture capitalist, now is prime minister of Greece. <laughs> and Greece is actually one of the fortunate ones to have competent leadership. <laughs> and um, Kyriakos and, and his wife, Mareva, came and said, look, Greece needs this. And I, I was concerned. I thought this will open the floodgates, which it did to Italy, to Spain. I would say in Europe, Endeavor has been hugely successful. And it's actually been very hard to build successful companies in places like Italy and Spain and Greece before Endeavor was there. And I'm super proud of the network we've built and of the entrepreneurs who really are now creating this spirit of possibility. And we've seen a number of exits coming out of these and the first unicorns in um, in Spain um, and and sunicorns, as someone said, in, in, in Italy and Greece. We did go to the US, which was a, a little bit of a controversial play. But interestingly, it was really only Endeavor and Steve Case's Rise of the Rest that five, 10 years ago, thought it was possible to build companies in the US outside Silicon Valley. And it was really the arrogance of the venture capitalists who said, oh, we'll invest in you if you're in Miami or Detroit or Atlanta or Louisville, but you have to move here. And we said, that's ridiculous. What are you talking about? So now it seems obvious and post COVID everyone, uh, there's a billboard from the mayor of Miami in San Francisco saying, if you're planning to move to Miami, you know, DM me <laughs> I'm a billboard in San Francisco. So now it seems obvious um, I'd say at this point in the U.S., we're looking a lot at underserved founders. We, um, it's still very difficult if you're a female founder, if you're a black or other minority founder to, to access uh, venture capital. So we're focusing on that. But I think also what's so interesting is the interplay between these entrepreneurs that are even coming from the Europe and outside Silicon Valley in New York and the U.S. and the emerging markets where it's actually kind of similar to try to attract mm -hmm. talent to your city and to build build companies where it's really not been done before. Sounds great. And uh, in fact, I mean, when the ecosystem is weak, it doesn't matter where you are. It's the same process in a sense. 
Yeah. The one thing I will say, and this um, this is very interesting in terms of COVID. At a country level, I was blown away by the fact that Endeavor entrepreneurs not only grew, right? We know that a lot that the world of going digital was enhanced. And so all of these tech-enabled companies obviously are going to do well. We had more investments in Catalyst last year than ever. We had more exits um, in the last year than ever. But what, what makes me so proud is the way entrepreneurs reacted and said, and this is different than in the US, they said, if our country is hurting, we've got to provide the solutions. So just three quick examples. Altibi in Jordan, the WebMD of Jordan, became the national health line about COVID, okay, for the entire country. Uh, you had a 3D printing company in Italy that changed production. It was doing, you know, hardware and, and ended up providing the, the PPE. And in, in Nigeria, one of the, the, probably what will be the first unicorn in Nigeria, a company called Flutterwave, um, founded by this ex-PayPaler GB, wonderful guy. And he is building the largest B2B payment infrastructure for small businesses. But what he realized is that he couldn't just be the, you know, the payment infrastructure, the, you know, the stripe of, um, you know, of, of, of Africa. He needed actually to help businesses keep their lights on because suddenly they were losing all their foot traffic and did not have any storefront. So what he did is pivoted his model from just being B2B to actually helping 20, these 20,000 businesses keep the lights on. That was the mantra. Um, and they processed over $7.5 billion last year in the revenue for the, and they had 80 million transactions. And he really saved small businesses in, in, in Nigeria. So I think that is, that is why for me, um, working at the country level in these emerging uh, and growth markets is super exciting because you see just the ecosystem impact that goes beyond just the entrepreneur and technology infrastructure to when a crisis happens, how do people make you know an impact at a national level? Fantastic. And from our audience, we have a question. This is Peter from New York. And he was, in fact, wondering about, about uh, how the pandemic has affected both the supply of entrepreneurs. And I'll add a question to that, actually, and say also the supply of investment. Well, it's interesting. Exactly a year ago, I was coming back from Saudi Arabia, my last trip. Um, and when we shut down, uh, we immediately started uh, an Endeavor webinar series called Leading Through Crisis. Uh, and we were the lone optimists at that point. And I'd say at that point, all the VCs said, hoard your money, don't spend a dime, you're never raising again. And, and we thought, you're insane. This is like the best moment to be an entrepreneur. And I reminded everyone, my mantra, apart from the crazy as a compliment, my other mantra is that when economies turn down, entrepreneurs turn up. And that is, of course, what happened. And what we saw is that tech-enabled solutions really were, were more needed than ever. So we would have you know, digital transformation companies skyrocketing, ed tech platforms, health tech platforms. Imagine you know, what would have happened pre-Zoom. I mean, just everyone was finding solutions. We had coffee shops opening in Indonesia with tech-enabled solutions. We had, as I mentioned, with Flutterwave, in every you know, country, people finding fintech options to actually create opportunities for lots of mom and pop shops to build digital storefronts. And now, guess what? Those digital storefronts are thriving. I'm on a board of a company called Olo here, based in New York, that's doing a SaaS-based platform for digital ordering. Well, the trends were already going away from in-person eating in restaurants to digital. And now if you're a restaurant, you've just had to create that digital storefront or maybe used a cloud kitchen. So what I would say is um, the best time to be an entrepreneur is not when things are going great, because then the less agile companies can just you know, uh, get all the talent. It's when things are troubled and when there is chaos. Chaos is the friend of the entrepreneur, because that's when if you're a big non-agile firm, you're retrenching and the agile companies are the ones that can fly. So just to end here, we invested through Endeavor Catalyst. We raised our largest catalyst fund last year. Um, 134 million of the 250 million dollars. We were only targeted. We were targeting less than that. We made uh, 34 investments, I believe, more our most uh, that we'd ever had in a diversified, um, you know, platform. We've had more exits happening. So I actually think that 
um, what is going on is the speeding up of the entrepreneurial revolutions we were seeing for the last five and 10 years. And that is not going to stop because I think that we are just at the beginning of ag tech and ed tech and health tech and solving these pay points through technology. It's no longer just about social networks. We had seen this for many, many years, but I think Silicon Valley and the and the VCs are now finally realizing there is growth opportunities in, in actually solving these real pain points. Absolutely. And as the pandemic forces us and forces companies to become digital, there's just so much opportunity for tech entrepreneurs to, to disrupt those who are staying behind, in fact. That's absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And even non-tech entrepreneurs have to have a tech component. So even yeah. the F&B companies we're seeing, even the retail businesses know they have to have a tech-enabled component to grow. So there's no longer a difference between the tech companies, which used to be hardware and software and engineers, and the non-tech companies. That distinction has gone away, my friends. <laughs> like everything has to be tech-enabled or, or you're not going to move forward. In fact, and um, it seems that in your portfolio, there is a great emphasis, or at least historically, there was an emphasis uh, on tech entrepreneurship, but there's also quite a bit of non-tech in there as well. Can you tell us about that balance? And of course, that has changed over time, as you say. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because one of the things I sometimes stoke a little bit of controversy because, <laughs> you know, and, and for me, high impact has always been about high growth. As I said, it's, it's about high growth plus paying it forward, right? But, but the impact investment world that took hold, people wanted to lump Endeavor in with, and I rejected that. I said, no, because <laughs> people who were calling impact investing were the, quote, traditional VCs who thought, oh, all of this cute little healthcare and education and ag, you know, uh, investments, they're kind of on the margins. I guess they used to be social and now maybe there's a business there, but we're going to stick with, you know, uh, the, the, the new apps and the new, right. And the new, uh, you know, software plays and we are in the new SaaS companies. And we said, look, we're going to do both, but you guys are missing the point. And when you look outside of the U S you have to solve problems. And so, you know, as I said, if you're a, a B2B fintech company, but your your merchants don't have you know access to credit or don't have access to their customers, you're solving that problem. And what we saw is to leapfrog many of the infrastructure problems in healthcare, we saw a lot of health delivery systems because there were just not efficient um, you know, platforms, whether it was emergency rooms that didn't have technology to make decisions on time, or actually we now have actually uh, healthcare like trucks coming into places in the cities that didn't have access to vaccinations, which is obviously becoming very important, or ed tech platforms in, in populations where you just didn't have the, the, the internet access. How do you deal with that? How do you do it over mobile, right? And, and the world had gone to mobile, as we know, much earlier than the US. Fa Facebook was famously lagging in mobile. Nigeria and uh, Brazil and Indonesia were much further ahead with mobile and Turkey and, um, than, than the US. So what we saw is just early on, the real entrepreneurs don't just build PowerPoints, they solve pain points. <laughs> and I think that the US VCs are late to the game, but now realizing that actually health tech, ag tech, ed tech, these health and these tech enabled big, big, big problem uh, scaling solutions are really where the growth is going to come. So so what I would say is there's not there's not really been a distinction in, in the last years. If we have um, one of our top female entrepreneurs, a woman named Veronica, who grew up in the north of Spain, this this um, town called Burfos. And she actually left this family business. It was a manufacturing business and she didn't want to take it over. And she went to, uh, to Paris and, you know, and was, and got her aeronautical engineering degree in Spain, then went to Paris, but was called back as the family business was shrinking and needed help. And she realized this opportunity to take from this, as I said, this Northern, this, this town and turned it into an AI robotics manufacturing company. Her clients are Tesla and Apple, right? And so I think that what we've seen is whether it's manufacturing, whether it's healthcare, whether it's education, whether it's agriculture, the new generation is saying, let's blend these tech scaling solutions. And this is true in F&B as well. 
every food and beverage company in Endeavor now has a tech platform. And I think that that's what we're realizing is that if you see a distinction, then you're missing um, the beauty of solving big problems, but using the scaling capabilities of, of technology. Fantastic. Um, I want to next uh, touch upon a question that is quite popular in our chat. And uh, specifically, it is about what qualities you're looking for in an entrepreneur. At Oxford, at CDL, for example, we see a lot of very interesting ventures coming in. But even the ones with greatest ideas sometimes don't go forward. And sometimes it has to do yeah. with, with the qualities of the entrepreneur. So what makes an entrepreneur go forward and skyrocket? You know, we focus in Endeavor on the scale-ups, not the startups. And I think that what's interesting about that is there are different sets of challenges at the scale-up phase. Often, I always say if you're starting with co-founders, even if they're your best friends or your sister or brother, get a startup prenup. <laughs> because what happens is everyone's like, oh, we'll all split the equity equally. We'll all be co-CEOs and make the decisions. That sounds great at the beginning. And then five years in, when one person is really working day and night and the other person is, you know, decided they actually want to do something part-time somewhere else or someone else really can't scale into the CFO for a fast-growing company, and yet you're stuck with this structure, you need a way to deal with, <laughs> with, with situations as uh, scenarios change. So a lot of times what we're doing is helping people, you know, restructure their original equity and partnership agreements. So that's just something to keep in mind for those of you starting out. But to your answer your question, Pinar, um, I always look for why this entrepreneur solving this problem? Because what I found, if it's just opportunistic, if it's just people who've reverse engineered, okay, you know what? Um, today, uh, Clubhouse is popular. So I'm going to create the Clubhouse for pets. I don't know, you know, right? Uh, I don't know. If, if, if it's a reverse engineered opportunity, when things get hard and they will get hard, what's going to make you stick with it? Whereas when there's a real reason why this entrepreneur is starting that this particular company, I, I always look for that. And a recent example that's not an Endeavor company, but recently in the news is the story of Bumble, right? And the founder of Bumble, famously a, a woman, had been um, part of the triumvirate that started Tinder and got basically canceled from that company because she was in a bad relationship with one of her co-founders. And of course, the woman is the one who had to leave. And she realized there were a lot of challenges with dating apps because the men were in control. And so her premise behind Bumble is that the women are actually going to be in control. And she she came and it was, it was very... Uh, uh, unclear at the time when she started that she who had been literally canceled from Tinder, which was at that point one of the, the most successful companies, was going to be able to start this female-led dating app. Well, Bumble, of course, just went public. It's valued, I think, at about $9.5 billion as of today. And she's the youngest self-made you know, billionaire um, female and, and women uh, entrepreneur. And so I think that that story, what I like about it is there's a reason why why she founded this particular company. So that's what I would say to all of you. If there's some real pain point or some real opportunity that's come from your own life, it, the likelihood that you're gonna feel the need to keep going when times get tough is 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 more likely and so that's what i look like it's when everything's going well when people are you know getting thrown venture capital that's the easy point at some point it is going to get difficult and i want to know what's going to make this founder stick with this idea and if there's something in the the dna of the entrepreneur and the the, the idea itself um that will make them you know feel compelled to keep going um then then i'm going to back that that founder Amazing. And um, you talked about scalability and how important that is. And one of the things that, that we see in our research at Oxford is that sometimes, especially if the startup needs early partners, early buyers to work with, let's say an AI startup, they are in need of data and then they start to work with these early firms and then uh, they end up just becoming a consulting business and not being able to scale up with a product that applies to general masses. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the uh, ways in which you evaluate scalability? Yeah, I'd say there are two issues there. I thought you were going somewhere else, which is I always joke that the day we have clean cap tables and nice cap tables with the entrepreneurs being and the employees being properly incented is the day I can go home and declare my job done because <laughs> it's unfortunately not going to happen in my lifetime. 
Um, and I think people too early try to take get capital and on terrible terms. So I would say the more you can grow organically, the better and 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 not get diluted too early. But to your point, let me tell a story that's actually back in Argentina. It's actually a company that I'm now on the board of um, and and has been an Endeavor company for a while. And it was a company called Globant that was founded by you know four engineers who were basically realizing that uh, businesses were in need of digital transformation. They saw this very early in 2003, but basically Globant, which later went public on the New York Stock Exchange in 2014, was a kind of digital consultancy to your point. And they take clients um, and some of the biggest firms you know, in the, in the world, but they were doing you know, some backend digital transformation and they were doing whatever the companies needed, including some cool things like Disney had uh, Globant work on the magic bands when you went uh, back when we could actually travel to Disney World. They would give you the magic band uh, where everything, you know, goofy would pop up because you'd said you like goofy and, and that was all Globant. But, but what they realized and is, okay, how do we move from having a few clients where we're at the beck and call, but once to your point, Pinar, once you get the data, then you have the ability to sell what you're doing um, and, and for new for new companies, and 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 I think to re constantly reimagine, reinvent, and recommunicate what value you're providing to your clients enables you to transform. One other example, again, of a company I'm on the board of, and today um, Globant is a nine billion dollar firm and growing and taking on Accenture and Wipro and Emphasis and saying, hey, the way consulting has been done is completely wrong. We're going to do digital transformation at scale. But, but another company, Olo. So Olo, well, founded by um, someone who used to work for me, Noah Glass, was, was really looking at how you create opportunities for the top restaurants to have um, connections, digital connections, to be able to allow online ordering. Okay, this is what started 15 years ago. And what happened is over time, Noah realized as he had, was doing these backend platforms for 50% of the public restaurants, right, with all of the franchises and think, you know, Applebee's and Subway and all these, these big firms, he said, I have the data, what you, exactly what you mentioned, Pinar. And he said, but I'm going to give them the data. Unlike Uber or DoorDash that's going to keep the data, they want to work with me. And so what he did is transform Olo into the leading software as a service, SaaS-based platform for restaurants. Why? Because he convinced them that not only could he help them get access to these customers and help with their, their, their the, the digital side of food delivery, but he would give them access to their data and that he was on their side. So I think the way you use data is very important and being able to communicate that you're on the side of whatever client or customer, whether you're um, direct to consumer and you want the consumers to keep their data, which people are very cognizant of now, or whether it's your B2B and you're giving the customers, the businesses, the access to their consumer data and all the analytics. I think these are huge tools for the next generation of companies. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Coming up in the final part of this episode, how to manage different working cultures and the importance of relatability in leadership. But first, data is power across industries now. So how does Linda see entrepreneurship evolving in an age where we're facing extreme power by platforms? Well, you know, it's interesting. When you look at the Fortune 500 companies, the topple rate of, of, of companies, meaning the, the way they topple off the, the, the list and are, and are displaced by the next generation, is actually much faster than you would imagine. And I think there was a point uh, four or five years ago, and I'm sure it's true today, where half of the companies, over half of the companies on that fastest growing um, you know, company list were founded in periods of downturn, re recession, or, you know, or, or outright crisis. And I think that's what we're gonna see, and it's just the names change. So I think now people are worried about the big four, the big five having too much power. But you know, remember IBM was in that situation way back when. So I think that if Google and if you know Microsoft and Apple and Facebook and Alibaba aren't careful, 
you know, they're they're going to be, you know, disrupted themselves. And even, you know, look at look at what Facebook did. It tried to buy up all of the competitors, right? It tried to they bought up Instagram, it bought up WhatsApp. So what's happening? So then you have Snap and you have Clubhouse and you have all of these and you have um Signal and you have all of these other now competitors coming. So I, I, I believe in competition. I believe in agility. I think it's really hard, even for the com- the storied companies that started out um, as the most dynamic, at some point, they too become the old behemoths, you know? And you look at Amazon, look at now what Spotify is doing. And Spotify said, hey, we're going to be on the side of the business customer. We're the B2B savior, you know, uh, clients. Amazon only cares about the end users. We care about you, the businesses. So Spotify is taking on Amazon. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big believer disruption is possible. It's always a good time to be an entrepreneur. Don't worry about the entrenched leaders. Just just do your thing in the most, you know, agile, um, um, high scale way. And uh, yeah, move forward. In fact, and one of the ways in which we see entrepreneurs move forward now is that they see some of these platforms as potential partners that they can work with. In, For example, um, there is a certain service that these platforms are missing, but the platform actually has the data that can help the entrepreneur, as you said earlier, in order to create a win-win situation, right? Yeah, I would. I'm very cautious, though, when it comes to strategics making investments though because what you don't want to do is feel like they're you know there's the feed the fish thing that they're feeding you the fish only to fatten you up to eat you (laughs) so i would just be careful of what a partnership means yes for good platforms but maintain your independence always look over your shoulder and make sure you know it's not what's oh the other story is of of the porcupine that you know the uh i forgot the other animal that's going across and the porcupine promises to take care of them and then midway through it's you know it stings them and they and and as the the other animals dying you said but you promised you said i know but it's in my nature i can't help myself remember <laughs> it's in the nature of google and facebook to and amazon to want to eat you so just go in with that mindset <laughs> Fantastic. So we have another question here from Matthew Lizotte, and uh, he's thinking about service businesses and how they can scale up their technology and digital transformation. 100%. I, I look, as I said, Globant, when it was starting, I mentioned this company, and they're like, ugh, there's no scalability. What are you talking about? This is a consultancy. This is all based on people. Guess what? They've figured out a way to do business hacking and pods and built this incredible culture and have scaled people. What I would say is culture becomes really, really important in these service-based industries. I think two things, culture and communication. As I said, on the communication side, making sure customers really understand the value that you are delivering back to that, hey, we have data, we're going to give it to you. And here's, we're going to show you the improvements. I think the more you can show them the the cost savings, the efficiency savings, you have to over communicate so they don't take you for granted. That's beat one. Beat two, so they see you as a partner and not just a service provider. Who wants to be a service provider? You want to be a partner and go in not transaction-based, but but relationship-based. And and make sure you are focusing on the culture of your people because service-based businesses depend a lot on scaling your teams. And I think that if you have a, a, a healthy culture um, and now as we as we look remote, it becomes much more important when people are you know needing that emotional support. How do you do that? Those are the companies that are going to win. I think when you have software or hardware products, you can just focus on the product development and the quality of the product. If you're in the service, focus on those people. So focus on the people and culture and focus on communicating your value to your customers and you'll be great. Now, um, thinking about corporations, how can they be part of your ecosystem? Are they completely excluded? Uh, they're not. First of all, we have well, we have a lot of uh, you know ex Amazon, ex IBM, ex Google, <laughs> uh, ex Apple uh, folks who end up joining uh, and want to you know recapture their their old entrepreneurial startup spirit, scale up spirit. But no, we do we do partner with organizations. A lot of them. We just explained that we're entrepreneur first. So I think that they have to listen. It's not that they say, okay, we are, you know, corporate X and we have these services or these products to deliver to your entrepreneurs. We say, look, we're going to poll the entrepreneurs and they'll tell you what's interesting, you know, to them. So I think that that's, um, I think there are a lot of companies uh, that want that almost entrepreneur in residence type spirit. And so 
Endeavor, you know, entrepreneurs are actually providing that. Sometimes it backfires, though. We had a partnership with Ernst & Young. We still do. Um, but we had this part of the partnership where they would take, um, you know, top man, like high performing um, up and coming managers and embed them for a sabbatical with Endeavor entrepreneurs around the world. And then they told me it, the program had worked too well that um, a number of those managers came back and then quit <laughs> their jobs to go work full time with the entrepreneurs. And they're like, OK, we love Endeavor, but that program is canceled. So we said, OK, we have to do it in a way that is entrepreneur first, entrepreneur aligned, but realizes that part of what the company wants to do is attract and retain their own people. And I will say, by the way, we have a, a, an amazing partnership with Bain and Bain has been instrumental in Endeavor um, really building our own, you know, five-year uh, strategic plans and analyzing our own, you know, data to see what makes for great entrepreneurs. What do we know about choosing the right ones and also helping our entrepreneurs themselves. Um, so that's been a, a tremendous partnership. Um, I would say if you are a corporate, just make sure you're going out thinking about what's of value to the entrepreneur and not only, you know, what's of value to you, but there's, there's a role for everyone in the ecosystem. <laughs> Fantastic. Great. Uh, we have a question from uh, Vietnam. And the question is, how does the platform deal with the difference in working culture in local versus foreign entrepreneurs? Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that. And let me say, I love Vietnam. And we have an office there. I spent wonderful time in, in Saigon and Ho Chi Minh City. Um, and, uh, and can't wait to get back. Let me give you two examples of Endeavor entrepreneurs from, from Vietnam. Um, one is, is a, a guy named Max, grew up super poor and didn't speak English, a word of English. And what he realized is he wanted to create the payments platform, uh, let's say the Stripe you know, of, of Vietnam and eventually Southeast Asia. But the way you had to do it, there's so little trust and you had to go into these really, really poor neighborhoods and communities, which he came from. And it was kiosk to kiosk. We saw this too with Buka Lapak, one of our companies in Indonesia, same thing with, with Zaki um, and Fadrin, the, the founders. They went you know, hyper local, right? And this guy has built this network and built one of the you know, killer payment platforms now in Vietnam. He's actually being mentored by a Guillaume of Checkout, back to checkout.com and Guillaume paying it forward. He's become, he was on the selection panel and has now become a mentor to Max. And Max taught himself English and is, is, is creating this platform that even though it started in Vietnam, he wants the best practices from around the world, right? And he's like, I want global best practices and then I'm gonna custom tailor it to Vietnam and then the Philippines and then Malaysia, which, which are the cultures that I understand, which is fantastic. But to your point, one of my favorite new Endeavor entrepreneurs is a woman named Vu, Vu Van, and she um, is an engineer from Vietnam and she ended up going to a Stanford Business School and realizing that because of her accent, she wasn't getting called on or being taken seriously by her professors and her classmates. So she paid to get an English tutor. And then she realized, well, there are all these other people who had the same problems. It was slightly different accent issues if they were from Japan or India or Brazil, but they also had their same problems. And she wanted to create a platform where if you couldn't afford the $200 an hour English tutor, you know, or $100 an hour, you know, what could you do? She wanted to democratize that access. So she teamed up with one of the XAI experts from Google and has created this AI-based platform. It's called Elsa. It's voice recognition technology that depending on what your accent is, helps you learn, you know, learn English. So here is this Vietnamese woman that's now created, it just raised a, um, a Series B we participated in with some of the top you know, investors in Southeast Asia and in Silicon Valley and super scaling business. But it was to your point, it was solving this challenge of how do you take someone from places like Vietnam and Brazil and help them communicate where, at least for now, the global business language is English, but to retain the hyper-local knowledge they have. So that's really the what we're trying to do at Endeavor is marry, back to Pinar's original question, that local you know, experience with global peer-to-peer -peer knowledge. Love Vietnam. Exactly. As it is in our title, I also want to ask you about leadership. So you are leading a, a multinational mission-driven organization, and I'm sure that it's uh, both very exciting, but also challenging. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the challenges? What did you learn in this process? Yeah, great question. So let me let me start um, by sharing you know, part of the story that I like to share because it's really 
um, my husband is a writer and writes about life quakes. And this was one of my life quakes and it involved him. He's a writer. He, um, 15 time, you know, New York times bestselling author wrote, um, a, a lot about walking in the middle East and walking the Bible. And then he wrote, um, now he writes about like, sort of life quakes and, and, uh, different and work quakes and, and those challenges. But uh, in 2008, he was diagnosed with a rare form of bone cancer, osteosarcoma, uh, that only affects 100 adults a year. The survival rate is not, was not great. And we have our twins who are now almost 16, zooming uh, in school right above me. <laughs> they were three at the time. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm running this organization. We had just uh, received you know, $10 million of investment by the Omidyar network to scale at that point beyond Latin America and Turkey and, and South Africa to scale to 25 countries. We were 10 at the time, as, as I said, now we're 40. And I thought, oh my God, what am I gonna do? And I said, look, I can't, I've gotta go to every chemo appointment of Bruce. He had a 16 hour surgery to replace his whole femur. And I said, that's my priority in taking care of my girls. And I just want to be honest. And of course, everyone stepped up. And you realize when you're a leader that everyone can do much more without you than you thought. But when I came back, here's the real kicker for me in the lesson. I, I thought, OK, I have to be tough. I have to be strong, especially as a woman. I'm not going to be you know, too vulnerable. It'll be cringy for people and it'll make them feel uncomfortable. I need to show just kind of strength. But when I was asked about Bruce was recovering and the girls and it was just all a lot. And I, I kind of broke down. I was really embarrassed. And I thought, oh, God, now no one's going to want to follow me. They're going to think I'm weak and, and, and not sort of trust my ability to lead them. And of course, the opposite happened. And I had these two young women at the time working for me who said, who pulled me aside and said, you know what, Linda, we always thought you were superhuman. <laughs> and that was super intimidating. <laughs> and now that we see the, the more human, more vulnerable side of you, we'll follow you anywhere. And so I said to myself, oh my God, you're right. I was trying to be superhuman when really leaders have to be less super, more human. And I think we're seeing this now with Joe Biden, right? Really trying to just be a decent, human, empathic leader. And I think that male and female, that is the type of leadership that is more needed than ever, especially, and now I'll just quickly turn to um, what's happened in in COVID where I've been able to, I have 500 team members worldwide, 50 were in New York. And I'd always say I have a team of 500, not 50. Well, because of Zoom, because we're all actually remote, I actually meet with the full team much more often I did when we were than when we were siloed in our offices. I meet with boards and entrepreneurs all over the world. We have our selection panels now online. And so I'm able to communicate much more with a wider swath of people. It means I'm exhausted. So I think you have to replenish yourself and take care of yourself and realize if you're never taking a break, if you're never taking vacation, you think you're, you're, you know, you're not showing it, you're showing it. So first I would say, take care of yourself, be less super more human, but also today people want that relatability. People are having their own struggles as, and, and seeing leaders who have that empathy while having that passion and that vision to move forward, if you can marry that, I think those are the types of leaders who are going to, um, to, to thrive ahead. It's no longer the militaristic, you know, <laughs> at, you know, just at all costs, you know, don't talk to me about personal issues and just don't talk about anything about, about, about work. I think those days are over. And this gets back to the last question about marrying cultures too. You know, if, if you want to create a world-class company today and it's remote, you've got to be able to attract talent from anywhere, meaning you really have to be sensitive to different cultures and have that open spirit of dialogue and discussion. So it's an excellent question. I've never been more optimistic. Um, and yet people, one of the things about Oxford Saeed Business School is you guys are global. It's one of the most global business schools, right? You're taught to think in an interdisciplinary way. I think it's incredible and it's been incredible to meet the Pershing Square scholars over the last uh, number of, of years. And I'm always impressed by how people are problem solving with these interdisciplinary techniques. Again, that's very different than other business schools. This is my Oxford side plug right now. <laughs> no, but I really feel like you guys are well positioned 
to uh, to have positions of leadership because those skills and the empathy that I know is part and parcel of the strategy and leadership. I think you have all of these qualities that are in high, high demand. And I'm wishing all of you the best of luck and stay in touch with me. And, uh, you know, I'm on, I'm on Twitter. I don't check LinkedIn as much as Reed Hoffman would like, but I occasionally check LinkedIn. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just proud to be part of this community. My thanks to Linda Rottenberg and Professor Pinar Oskamp. My name is Peter Tufano, and you've been listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast from Oxford University's Said Business School. Subscribe to future episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this episode, take a moment to rate and review us. In the next episode, we'll be looking at the changing relationship between China and the West. You can find more information about this and all our previous episodes from the Leadership in Extraordinary Time series at OxfordAnswers.org. Stay safe, and thanks for listening.